You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. Today, you're in for a treat. I'm just gonna jump right in. We've invited a fan favorite back, Paul Zakopoulos, and I affectionately refer him to as Paul Z. I think everybody knows him as, as Paul Z. He is the vice president, unless he's changed, he's a mover, mover and a shaker, but vice president of Big Data Cognitive Systems. But here's how I know Paul. He is an energetic leader. He's got deep experience with client engagements, with sales. Uh, he values accountability, accomplishments. He's a straight talker. Uh, he's a professional and award-winning speaker and author. I think he's written something like 19 books. Uh, last count, 350 articles. I'm sure that's up, up, up by now. But he's been at IBM for over 24 years, uh, resides in Canada. I tell you what, when, Paul, when I, when I do these podcasts, they originally were supposed to get me motivated. But then when I bring on folks like you with all these accomplishments, I, I start thinking, Jesus, I got I to gotta get my, my stuff together here, man. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll be uh, back. Uh, thank you. And first, I'll just get out the Canadian part. How's it going, A? So now you guys can all know where we're <laughs> Listen, I wouldn't feel that much about all those book accomplishments. It's just uh, I just have this love of learning, and I decide to, to take the learning and put it into a book. But to give you an example of the accomplishment, it's not like I wrote 50 Shades of Big Data or anything like that, right? So like my dad the other day as a joke, or he thought it was funny, sent me a box of five of my books. Uh, that I wrote a number of years ago, and he said I bought these for two dollars each at the at the bargain bin store. So that's about the equivalent of. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that, that's what dads are for, right? That's right. Yeah, he keeps me, <laughs> keeps me grounded. Well, welcome back. Um, <laughs> there's so many things to talk about. I have to start with a discussion that we almost got into before we brought into the podcast because I've seen it on LinkedIn. I know you've been going to concerts. You've been adding. Uh, cognitive or maybe ML models of these con concerts. Tell us what you've been up to. So look at uh, my thing is that AI can be fun. And I try to think about how do I bring this interest in AI, which is literally going to be this massive inflection point, right? Uh, in our society so that everybody starts getting kind of involved, right? Because we're going to go and see almost where, we have humans that are leading processes assisted by technology into this inflection point where the technology kind of runs the process and the human assists the technology. And so I'm just trying to get everyone into the, you know, the scope of this is what AI can do for you. So we're at this Luke Bryan country singer concert. If you're a country fan, well, I had a unique experience to have met him in person and have lunch and he performed a couple sets privately for us, for me and my friends. And then we went to the concert and we're sitting there front row stage. And he's quite the entertainer. By the way, he's a great guy. So I'm just having fun with AI. He's a really humble guy. And uh, I got to tell you, for an hour and a half of the concert, I couldn't help but hypothesize that he was showing his butt and thrusting his groin all night long. Like that's that <laughs> shit, right? And so everyone believed me, and I was like, all right, I'm going to build an AI algorithm to go through all of our footage, uh, and it will extract automatically 
from all of our video footage from six people's cell phones and then classify the amount of groin or junk and trunk time and count it up. And so I did that and I posted it on LinkedIn. You would have seen that. I did it tongue in cheek. But you know, that use case, Al, actually came from the story I was looking at. Yeah, indeed. And by the way, he's about two to one on the junk time versus the trunk time. Um, but I actually took it from how they found uh, that the whale shark is an endangered species. Like it's the same use case, and that's the cool thing about AI. So real quickly, this you know conservation society looking after whale sharks. Whale sharks have this spotty pattern, like a giraffe, a cheetah, and each of these patterns are like a fingerprint. So they uniquely identify someone. And what they've done is created an algorithm to look for these patterns on a whale shark, just like I built this uh, Luke Bryan. Uh, algorithm and it goes across YouTube using a nutch crawler and it identifies any video of a whale shark and then when it grabs the video it creates a fingerprint of the spot pattern and then it grabs the location of where the video was taken so we can understand where whale shark populations are and off the GPS coordinates. And if the GPS coordinates aren't there, the AI algorithm puts a comment on the YouTube. So they were able, this society was able to move the whale shark to the endangered species list by tracking them, crowdsourcing video from divers and vacationers, uploading it to YouTube. It's the same use case, something different. And uh, that's where it came from. <laughs> very, very different use case, I would say. <laughs> so uh, as you guys are listening see we go anywhere we'll talk anything on this podcast paul is the best he's able to take it down and make it real for all of us thank you man that was a good story that hey actually, look uh, that actually sounds like a country lyric right there take <laughs> i didn't take you for a country fan actually I'm, this, a fan. I'm a talent i'm a fan of talent heavy metal country you name it so luke bryan is in your talent category he's very talented yeah all right, very good. I, I have to admit, uh, my wife drug me to a Luke Bryan concert as well. Um, I don't remember the last half of it. <laughs> All good. Hey, so I want to talk about two things today in addition to that, but we can go anywhere because that, that, that's funny. Um, data science and leadership. I want to start with, I'll start with data science and we'll get to the fun stuff on the leadership side. Um, you have been a huge advocate for making Watson available on any cloud, not just IBM cloud. What is, wh why is that important to you? And, and where's your head at as it relates to uh, making Watson available anywhere? Yeah, like, listen, I was, um, yeah, I'm, I'll be a straight talker here. I, I actually thought we were cheating our clients and the marketplace by saying the only place Watson could be was in the IBM public cloud. Uh, there are five prominent cloud vendors. Most of our clients have multiple clouds. And I think the first premise I would say is cloud is a capability, not a destination. And there's too many vendors and including IBMers that just have to take the word cloud to mean public cloud. It shouldn't mean that. It's a, it's a capability. It's a method of compute, elasticity, of agility, high density. And so you saw the acquisition of Red Hat, which really you know, really hardens this cloud anywhere strategy with open container platform. Uh, and that was it. So now I should be able to mix and match my services no matter where 
I'm applying my cloud capabilities, whether that's Amazon, Azure, whether it's on-premise in a private cloud. And at the end of the day, Al, I don't. I tell people, you don't build AI applications, you compose them. And you compose them with endpoints that are restful invocations of APIs. And I should just call and piece it together. So if I want to go and mix a voice to text uh, from the Alexa console and go and pull Watson in, then I want to be able to do that. And indeed I can. So Watson everywhere, cloud anywhere, that's our IBM strategy moving forward since about last spring. And it is one that should hunt in the marketplace for our clients and our sales force. You know, I was thinking the other day at IBM here, we have a hybrid class strategy, which I'm, I'm very fond of. And I was thinking it couldn't be more prevalent the other the other day. And I know you and you kind of led into this. We've talked about this, and that is is, you know, I was at a football game the other day, and I couldn't even get internet access because uh, there were so many people hitting the network. And in that case, you know, you think you know if you're you're running a business, if you have a, a other options like private or otherwise, I don't know what you think about that. But you you were talking earlier about you know the same challenges you had. I mean, it seems like uh, I don't know if five G is going to take care of this. But we have our challenges in terms of just bandwidth. Yeah, you know, uh, so 5G will handle this enormously. I mean, 5G, you'll be downloading uh, movies, high-def movies in seconds. You'll charge your phone once a month. But, you know, I had my own experience, ironically, at that Luke Bryan concert. So he has this promo, uh, if you hashtag... Uh, here's to the farmer, then he'll donate a meal to feed a hungry American, which is great. So that's why I went and, and went and drove probably about 50,000 impressions with my social stuff around that. Um, and at the concert, they tried to get everyone to you know upload your pictures and hashtag during the concert. You had 20,000 people in a farm field. They overloaded the tower. My tower reception was three bars and nothing was happening. And I said, I thought to myself, Man, we still got a ways to go with the cloud. And to your point, you know, depending on the application, am I going to lead someone's life in the hands of a connectivity issue? Um, So it depends. And and I think at the end of the day, you'll see edge computing move here. But anytime someone tells you one size fits all, they're just wrong. And whether it was, oh, Hadoop will remove every data warehouse forever, it's just bad advice. So I like to have a toolkit, use that toolkit on-premise, in the cloud, those are parts of my toolkit, and I'll put the appropriate modality and location of my application for what I'm trying to do. And that's how I approach it. And that's the way I tell customers to approach it as well. So are we moving to, well, let me let me ask you this first. You know, are companies, are other companies following the same IBM methodology approach of hybrid multi-cloud? That's, that's part A. And, and are we moving towards a world where AI will be truly platform independent? Yeah, so I would say, yes, other companies are trying to move and emulate our value proposition, but they can't, especially after the acquisition of of Red Hat. We understand on-premises. We understand the enterprise hardening to go on in that area and secure lockdown and those types of things. You know, Azure, Microsoft Azure is a natural fit there because they they come from on-premise as well with their software. But folks like Google and, and Amazon are trying to come down uh, to meet the data where it is on premises. So yes, everyone is talking about it, but you know, not everyone can do it. So you were one of, I think you were the creator or at least a part of the creation team that uh, helped outline the Latter-day AI, uh, the maturity curve, by the way, which I use in almost every client visit that I'm in so we can figure out where they are in that maturity curve, uh, meaning uh, are they 
Are they in collect, organize, analyze, infuse? Most of them turn out to be on the collect side. In other words, they really got their data, get their data straight. They got to get it cleansed. They got to mine it. They got to refine it, et cetera. Um, you know, given you visit a ton of clients, you talk to a ton of clients, you are what I consider a, the, the inventor of that maturity curve in terms of characterizing it the way it is characterized now. Where are clients in that maturity curve at this point in time? What you invented that or, or, or it was created like a, a couple of years ago. Have we progressed? Have we, or we still find ourselves, hey, still cleaning data? Yeah, I mean, that's a great comment. Uh, look, at, here's what I'll tell you. I would say that if I had to give a grade score to our clients for uh, data collection, uh, I would give them an A+. Plus. The world does not have problems collecting data, but understanding that data uh, is, is an issue. So our clients, most of them are information rich and data understanding poor. Um, and so that's where that kind of maturity curve and the ladder, uh, the ladder is really uh, Rob Thomas and the curve. I had parts of that, a lot of other people put into that. And so here we are, um, and clients are moving along that path, but they're not moving as fast as you'd think. Now, the clients that have teamed with IBM, I think, are moving a lot faster because we came out with this prescriptive model, this AI ladder, so folks could understand what the journey is. You see, at the end of the day, AI is not go put a glass slipper on someone's foot and they turn into a princess or kiss a toad and they're a prince. AI is hard work. It's around data acumen. And, and shame on those, whether they're IBMers or not, who act like uh, AI is magic and all you have to do is give it to data. So we have this journey and we're helping people with this journey. And one of the key pieces of that journey actually is around the organized phase. So most people, when you think about organized, you're thinking about uh, governance and those types of things, making data findable, understandable, but understanding provenance and lineage of that data. And if you step back for a moment and think about how most companies uh, handle governance, they do what I call a least effort to comply. In other words, oh, we don't want to get a GDPR fine, so let's go and figure out the lineage for this in case someone invokes the right to be forgotten or a data erasure law. But I will tell you, those that invest in the governance and understanding the data, the lineage, the provenance, what's been done to the data, they will accelerate uh, their analytics journey. And, and I think I'd wrap that up by saying, uh, clients, I ask them to look at two parts of their journey. I want them to think about one area where they uh, spend money to save money. And clients are really good at that, by the way. But then I want them to think of other projects as spend money to make money. And you can take the savings from spend to save and put it in spend to make. Uh, one is an innovation and the other is renovation. And when you start to approach your problems like that, then you start to move along the curve a lot faster because you understand what the goal is of the project you're working on. Can you can you describe a success in working with a client that really embodied spending money to make money? Yeah, so I mean, J. Crew was a great example. So we brought together these. They had two different data scientist groups. Um, they were an R group and a Python group. Uh, I mean, that's religious warfare right there, right? Um, and, and they're working on separate projects. And so we brought in an environment, uh, first off, to bring their data, their clickstream data, customer preference data, uh, social data, and all that kind of stuff into a Hadoop cluster. Um, in that area, I feel like we were spending to save. We were taking out an expensive uh, Oracle data warehouses that they had and bringing this data and flattening it out for exploration to Hadoop. Then we brought the two together using uh, Watson Studio. At the time, it was called 
a data science experience, but Watson Studio brought in the collaboration of data science. So it brought in their line of business users. It brought in our data scientists, Python data scientists. We were able to collaborate and share in one place and started to create promotions and insights that would drive the business. And that was that area there was really spending money to make the money. Nice. So you've talked about, in terms of Watson everywhere, democratizing AI, et cetera. Um, here's my question. It's, a, it, it's kind of a two-parter. Is it realistic in your mind to have non-data scientists that will get in that uh, and understand the math and the process to really make this work? I mean, in other words, a citizen data scientist, and, and where is that limit? And then part B is, all right, whether it is or it isn't, how do I go from like 10 to 20 ML algorithms up to 1,000 or 10,000 and manage and monitor? How can I really progress that and get to a point where I'm humming? Yeah, so first I'm going to come out and tell you, uh, I don't think I don't think you're going to take non-data scientists and make them all instant deep data scientists upon which they could build their own algorithm to detect whether this cancer is benign or malignant. I don't think that's the answer. People talk like that, but I don't feel that that's the answer. I think if you look at how do you take this journey on an AI renaissance, I call it the wisdom of the crowd. So how do I get everybody involved in this renaissance? Because first off, you can't go, most companies aren't going to go hire 200 data scientists. They can't afford them, nor would they keep them. So if we get everybody involved, consider this idea. If we had line of business involved, and they could take tool sets that could generate initial models for visual recognition or pattern recognition using tool sets like Power AI Vision or uh, the Watson uh, Machine Learning and uh, Watson Studio, they could generate initial models. And then they could move these models, right, over to the deep data science team that could hyperparameter tune them. Because if you look at a data scientist today, 80% of their time is not spent on data science at all. And so, you know, why would I spend it to them to label data so we had supervised learning? Why would I give it to the data scientists to find the lineage of the data, to clean the data up, to understand the business problem? If I could automate or build, you know, uh, tool sets so that the average person could step up into the data science role and build the initial model. Then I could pass it to the data scientist, and then the data scientist can explore the hyperparameter space and finding the performance of the model. Now, when we talk AI, Al, performance means how accurate it is. So, right. uh, and, and so they should spend time there. That's the super hard stuff. So that's wisdom of the crowd. And so what starts with wisdom of the crowd, line of business led to be 100 algorithms – gets to the data science team, they fine tune and great, great performance and generalization to unseen data of maybe 20 models. And then they move that to production. And then you do the whole damn cycle again. That's how you get to thousands of models. And when you get to thousands of models, then you have to understand how do I enterprise manage thousands of models? As I move to 10 models that I refresh every six months to thousands of models that get refreshed weekly or monthly, then I need to have some enterprise hardening around workload management, around things going stale. Uh, the, because the moment you deploy an algorithm is the moment it gets uh, its accuracy drops, right? And then on top of that, here's the other big, big thing right now is, is there bias in my algorithm? What are the ethics of my algorithm? And how do I ensure with data coming in that I've never seen before that I'm not biasing against, for example, an application for credit because of race, ethnicity, or location? So these are all the things that everyone doesn't always tell you about when they say GPU and look at this uh, computer, find a picture of a cat, or the growing time or trunk time, if you will, <laughs> of 
of Luke Bryan, right? (laughs) Enterprise hardening. And the only way you get it out of the corner office and data science projects to changing the outcomes of an enterprise is to follow the journey I just described. Fantastic, man. And by the way, you just did a fantastic job of selling the the products that I'm responsible for. We don't push products on this podcast, but I got to say, guys, check out Watson Studio Machine Learning Open Scale. And I've got to give a shout out to my team uh, that are listening, and and that's with Auto AI. Auto AI is essentially that. It's automating AI. It works. In fact, we just put it in a cattle competition that came in the top 10%. And uh, we also won an award recently for it. So check it out. It's real. It works. It'll help you get for it to, to step five out of 10 much faster. Helps the citizen data scientist as well. Hey, um, I want to take this time now to pivot. Now we'll talk about a little bit about leadership. Uh, you were The podcast that you were on previously was very well um, listened to uh, because of all the advice you gave. And just to repeat, uh, to catch us up to speed, if you haven't heard that, you got to go back to that previous podcast. I don't have the number offhand, but things we talked about is always being yourself, always uh, being a newbie. Vulnerability leads to confidence. Being humble means uh, doesn't mean that you can't be decisive. You are who you hang out with. Getting comfortable, being in, uncomfortable, and a leader's job being uh, getting butterflies to, to fly in formation. I think those were all uh, great advice. Um, one of the recent advices that, that, that I saw that you gave that I, I thought was good, and I, pr- I hope I get this right, it was a quote that you had out there. You said, when you run up first, then down, you build memories. When you run down first, then up, you build mental toughness. Be sure to put uh, runs in, in uh, both runs in your journey. I thought it was pretty good, man. I don't know where you come up with this. You just wake up in the middle of the night and then drop this down and then, then throw it in a book or what? Yeah, I, you know what? I come up. <laughs> Life experiences, or maybe I read a quote that sits with me. Actually, that that last piece you said quite sounded quite profound. I forgot I even said it. But if I <laughs> if I recall, I had just stepped off of a run in Tucson, Arizona, and I was running up and down hills, and I was reflecting on on my career and, and, and the journey. So uh, yeah, I just live life, and then I try to capture it in a comment or two. So that's how it comes from. Fantastic. So here's my first question. I'll answer it first in, in my mind, just to be fair, but I want to get your view. And the first question, very simple, what makes a great leader? Uh, and to, to start, when I look at it, to me, the definition in that, that I've learned from author John Maxwell is leadership equals influence. And uh, there's a ton of attributes that surround that. that uh, but you know, if you have good communication, you have better influence. That's why leaders seem to have unlimited bandwidth because that power of influences gets gets folks to follow them because they want to, not because they have to. And um, I mean, look, you can get pretty much anything done uh, if, if you're an influencer. So it's a really the definition as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you can be a bad leader by, you can influence in poor ways, but hopefully you're doing it positively. How would you define great leadership? Yeah, um, you know, that's an inter- interesting question. Um, I think, well, I would just define it as character to start. I mean, great leaders have character. And I, I always tell, I say this to my daughter all the time, uh, you know, you earn trust in droplets and you lose it in buckets. And, and character is easier earned than recovered. And from character will flow all the kinds of things that I think uh, make for great leadership. Uh, people with character they jump in and they help out. So, you know, I had an incident the other day with a leader. Uh, I won't say who they are, but they told me that, well, this isn't band 10 work. 
or this isn't director work. And I was like, well, I'm not in it. I got my hands dirty. So, uh, you know, why don't we all work together? So I'd say that's one thing. And, and that just gives you confidence and, and, uh, to give you some American history, I guess, I think it's your fourth U S president. Um, but he said, uh, was it Madison? I'm just trying to think now, but he said the circulation of confidence is more important than the circulation of money. So when you uh, bring confidence and trust to a team, other things will follow. And then from there, leaders will, you know, get it's, it's to be a leader. It's not just enough, at least for myself, for me to have a vision uh, for the org, uh, but I need to take the team with me. And so there's various ways to do that. And like I just said, trust is, is absolutely one of them. I think the other two things I would say is um, I try to make my team and the people I work with feel appreciated. I'm not perfect at that all the time, but a person who feels appreciated will always do more than expected. And then the other thing as a leader I do is I try to surround myself with smart people who will argue with me. So the other day uh, I was on a call and I was slacking someone and I said, and a, a general manager was speaking and I slacked a band 10 and I said, Hey, how come you don't speak up there? And they're like, my job isn't, you know, I'm not supposed to speak on this. I'm just supposed to listen. I go, if you're not supposed to speak on a call, you shouldn't be there. And so as a leader, you have to put into your organization, the culture that I don't care whether you're an intern, a low band, an exec or whatever. I was using some IBM terms there with band 10, but whether you're a junior or a senior person or exec, everybody has a right to express an opinion. Everyone has a right to argue with me. So I tell my team, you folks can argue with me. You can bring me all your facts. I have a brand new hire who is literally arguing with me on a point of view. And someone pinged me and thought, wow, she's aggressive. I go, no, she's empowered to speak. And I, as a leader, will promise you this. You will be heard. I will either make my decision and keep it the way it is, in which case, thank you for the arguments against it so I can defend it. B, we'll go with your decision. Maybe I missed the boat. Or maybe it'll be a hybrid and I'll etch my decision to the left or to the right. And in my history, it's been usually the middle. And uh, I think that's the most important thing you can do as a leader. Let everybody speak and argue with you, share an opinion. And as a leader, the standards you walk by every day is the standards you accept. So if you don't start that from scratch, then you're going to have a, you have a team that won't achieve what they should. So sometimes this is baked into a culture, get rid of the hierarchical culture, flat orgs. Everyone has an opinion. We make a decision. We all get on the bus, the energy bus together, and we drive to that decision. Look, I'm with you on that. I tend to be a, a debater by nature. I mean, in fact, even when I get together with, uh, with my side of the family, I'll come out of there. I mean, we would just go at it. it you know, it's fun. I mean, it, it, you, I like to hear different opinions, et cetera. I usually get to the car. My wife says, what in the hell just happened? You guys are in this huge fight. I'm like, no, that was great. She's come to learn it now. I don't know if you uh, have been to my house for Canadian Thanksgiving, but that's I haven't. You haven't invited me. <laughs> it's in uh, it's in a week or two, but um, you know, the Canadian Thanksgiving for those of you who don't know uh, in America is uh, well. This year it's going to be Monday the 14th. It's in early October. I like to think it's the real Thanksgiving because I don't think that. Uh, <laughs> Your Thanksgiving's late November. I don't think people were harvesting fields the last week of November, but that's just me. But, you know, debate is great. 
and I'll tell you, I'm going to give some parenting advice. Not that I'm any kind of parent of the year, but I can remember, you know, uh, with my daughter, she'd always start asking why. And I remember one day my wife lost her temper. like, because I said so. And I'm like, Kelly, we can never say that because if there's one thing I want to do to empower my daughter in this world is to never stop asking why. And even in my own company at IBM, I ask why all the time. And some answers I get is, well, because this is the way we've done it. And some people have given me an answer. And you know why it never hurts to ask why? Because if the answer is good, Al, then the process probably got vetted. And if you don't have a good answer, then maybe it needs to be looked at again. Totally, totally, totally agree. And speaking of agreement, I, I, I often preach agreement to disagree is a powerful thing. That's okay. I mean, that, that's the, that can be a great outcome because it, it'll, it'll slant or give you insight in terms of what one direction or another. And nobody can ever disagree with, hey, I agree to disagree. Thank you. That was a great discussion. It's not like they can disagree with that. I mean, it's, I want, a, great, it's a great way to end a, a call if that's where it ends. It for sure. Work. I agree. And then it's respectful because I once said to my wife, I respect your right to be wrong. And that didn't go over as well as we can. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit different. I wouldn't yeah. go that down, especially with your wife. I try to test some leadership and communication stuff out at home before I bring it to the office, but that's one I did not bring to the office. So, so I know you to be a continuously continuous learner like myself. How do you, I mean, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of work to do. And then adding continuous learning on top of that, how do you embrace what many would call work-life balance? Yeah, you know, that's a, boy, that's a great question. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll preclude this by saying um, with work-life balance, you got to understand what work is. You see, my problem is work has become a hobby, but that's because I love it. And I mean, I don't love being on phone calls and cadencing stuff. I love learning AI. So, you know, last Saturday, uh, the week before that concert, I got up at five and I worked till like 11 and my wife's like, you're throwing away your Saturday. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. It was my hobby. So, um, you got to figure out what those separate lines are. And here's what I'll tell you before you define work-life balance, just love what you do. Uh, because if you gave me 20 hours of a job I hated, it'd feel like 70. And if you gave me 70 hours of a job I, I love, like the one I love now, it'd feel like 20. And depending on the work you're doing, it's going to change the guardrails of all that kind of stuff. But to always learn, I think the number one thing you can do, and I see this in all large companies, is just start saying no, right? Listen, the company itself or other individuals and other business units will put an unlimited amount of demands on you. And it is your job and your manager's job to help you be constructive and a workload manager of requests. So, you know, I deal with organizations where they have 10 priorities and they're getting like nowhere on all of them or mediocre results. I'm like, we will declare, by the way, this is like a Rob Thomas special, right? We'll declare these three things we're going to do. The other seven, yeah, if we get them done, we get them done. And with that kind of clarity, you'll find work-life balance. Don't ever let anyone hand you a set of 10 critical, first, most important priorities. Make them prioritize their work. And if you're an employee, the number one thing I say to people is, don't tell me you're going to be late with something the day it's due or three days after it's due. Right. Exactly, exactly. Two or three weeks in advance, you come to me, or a week in advance, you're like, Paul, I'm not going to be able to make this date here's the five, six things I'm working on. Can you tell me what to move so this becomes number one? Put it in the hands of the manager. 
And employees fall for that all the time and bad managers don't get in front of that all the time. I agree the way I look at it. I used to look at a work-life balance and I even had a to-do list for work, a to-do list for home, disparate. And uh, I quickly learned over time. What that ended up doing is exactly what you described. I fell into the trap of I was just working all the time. And then I thought, you know, what is, where's my meaning? I've lost some of the meaning here. Uh, and so I now look at it as work-life blend, meaning it's just life. And so I have a to, to-do list when my to-do list is, is just everything from, you know, personal things I have to do, uh, things I want to learn, things I want to get done and work uh, just as well. And, uh, you know, to help me with that, I, I prioritize throughout the day. I use what's called the Pomodoro technique where I set up, you know, different Pomodoros. You can look it up if you're listening. But uh, it's like 30 minutes, I'm going to work on this. And, you know, I may give it two Pomodoros, which is 30 minutes each. So, you know, 60 minutes, I'll work on something. I'll put it down. I'll prioritize my day. I try to do it as best I can the night before so that I prioritize the things that are important to me. And I'm not so interrupt driven that I start working on somebody else's problem. Yeah. Uh, If you have any any tricks that you use. Oh, you know what? I'm going to look that up um, and up. Naturally, I was doing it today. I'm going through a new article on the GTP2 text classification and learning it and building some demos off of it. And I was like, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to work on it today. That's what I did. Um, So I think everyone will come up with their own piece, but there's a uniting theme between what we've talked about. Make time. And if that means you got to run out for a run for 30 minutes in the middle of the day, go do it. And if it means you got to take 30 minutes or an hour to go learn something, uh, then go do it. Don't let a day go by without learning. And here's the other thing you can do, especially if you work in a big corporation. You're not putting me on some weekly repeating 30-minute call with 90 people on it where everybody reads stuff out. Hold people accountable on what they're doing to your time. Because I don't care whether you're an exec, whether you're a senior or junior employee, your time is your time, especially in this work-life blend. I love that you said that. And so, for example, I've pushed very hard on some groups to go and put the information I need into a Slack channel. Then you can get on a call and we can talk about how we're going to handle the problems, but there's no more readout calls. And and a lot of groups have been great with that. And the groups that haven't, I just don't go to their calls anymore. Your time is precious to you. And whether I'm a VP and you're an intern, our times are equally important because there are time. And anyone who thinks otherwise, that's not very good leadership. So last call, last question for the day. Uh, it goes back to continuous, continuous learning, and that is, um, how do you how do you plan around? There's so many things to learn. Uh, for me, there's industry articles, there's sales training, there's industry or IBM training, there's demos that I work with my team. I like to coach. I like to to perform team assessments of of what they're working on, which is in a sense learning and training itself. How do you prioritize that, and how do you uh, how do you essentially make time so you don't get stuck in everything you just described? I mean, you've already talked to some, some things around it, but how yeah. do you really prioritize your training? Um, so it's kind of interesting. Some of my training comes as mandated by the company, which is great. Fine. I go through that kind of stuff. I, I don't want to disappoint you. I don't know if I have a prioritization algorithm, for lack of better words, on how I learn stuff. I go where my passion takes me. And so like a lot of times, you know, I'm coming up to go give a talk to a manufacturing company. Okay. So I'll just start Googling AI manufacturing. And well, to, to, to interrupt you then. So is yeah. it, 
Sorry about that. Is it because you start with an outcome, like you're going to a manufacturing company and then work backwards and say, all right, I got to learn this. So I'm well prepared for that. Is that how it always begins? Or do you also have other areas that starts bottom up first? Yeah, I guess I guess you just define maybe one of my algorithms. What's the word? I never realized it. But what do I got coming down the pipe? And that's what I'll go look at, especially on industry, specifically for industry stuff. In three weeks, I'm with an agricultural company. I'm going to learn about precision agriculture. I've been looking at that kind of stuff. Um, But I think what drives me is what excites me. And this goes back to when I said 70 hours of something you love feels like 20. Um, And the moment I get something, so I try to find something I find interesting. Um, and, And I guess that's what drives my learning. And so far, it seems to work. But what I do wake up every day and, and think is that I'm a newbie. And it doesn't matter whether that's an area I have expertise in. Like, for example, Hadoop. I wrote the book Hadoop for Dummies, but I feel like a newbie in Hadoop every day. Or whether it's some area where I'm a newbie, AI. Uh, I just, I know it takes effort. And, you know, Al, I, I think I'll leave you the story. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, have you seen the movie A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga? I did. I've seen it. Yeah. Great movie, right? Great movie. So Bradley Cooper is probably one of the most marketable Hollywood stars in the industry. Do you know he took three years to prep for this film and they filmed the the whole movie in 42 days. He took 18 months of singing lessons, eight months of piano, got a voice coach. He sang everything live because Lady Gaga demanded it. So if Bradley Cooper is going to take three years to get ready for 42 days in a movie, then Paul Z is going to get ready every single day for whatever comes my way. That's how I look at it. He got up in the Oscars, I think, and sang too, just in front of everybody in the whole world. Yeah. And I don't think that's his day job. That's the point, right? Like three years to prepare for this movie, I think, speaks volumes. 18 months of singing lessons. So why anybody here thinks that they shouldn't be prioritizing learning for their careers, it it just baffles me. So that's what you got to do. Put what you learn, what you love, because that's always going to make the learning better. And then prioritize the learning of what you need to know to do your job better. Great. We will stop there today. That's fantastic advice. Paul, you are the best. Uh, And for those of you listening, let us know what you think. Uh, Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. I can tell you right now, Paul, I'm going to get notes. And I hope I get notes for those that want to hear more of of Paul Z. And if so, I'd love to have you back because I got about 50 billion more questions for you. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. First off, I can tell you my wife and kid are not going to send you a note if they want to hear more from Paul Z. I can promise you that. But our next talk, let me go and share with you the best career advice I ever got I gave to myself. And I'll leave it at that. Oh, like he sets it up. So uh, Liam is listening. He's one of our producers. There we go. We got it. Thank you, Paul, so much. You're the best. I appreciate it. Thank you for the stories. Terrific. Yeah, guys. Bye. Talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple Podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out.